0: Floods, fires, earthquakes, hurricanes, shootings. From Slovenia to Morocco to Maui and more, our communities are facing more frequent and more devastating events. The challenges of ensuring readiness have never been greater or more pressing. Our theme today is not about preparedness in the traditional sense of expert prescriptions. It's about tapping into the power of the communities themselves. In some cases, power they didn't even know they had to be their own greatest resource in the face of disaster. This is about creating readiness with them, not doing it to them. Now, you might want to pack a lunch as today's episode will take us from the U.S. Virgin Islands to Joplin, Missouri, to Lahaina, Maui, and maybe even beyond that. My guest today is Megan Enright. She's the executive director of Love City Strong, a nonprofit formed on St. John the USVI after the devastation of Hurricanes Irma and Maria in 2017. Love City Strong engages in a range of programs that tap into And more important, strengthen and support the local community in the areas of disaster preparation, mitigation, and response. Megan's an MPLI alum and one of our global ambassadors. Megan Enright, welcome to Leader ReadyCast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's great to have you here. So let's start with Love City Strong. What's it all about, and how did you get involved?
1: So you, you gave us a great summation there of the overall mission of Love City Strong. But I think at its core, what we're really about is bringing together community resources to make sure that our community here on St. John is more prepared in the future than we were for the hurricanes of 2017. Um, as some people may know, St. John and the U.S. Virgin Islands were hit on September 6, 2017, by Hurricane Irma, which at the time was the strongest Category 5 hurricane in the Atlantic Basin, and uh, certainly the first one to hit the Leeward Islands. And then 14 days later, we were hit by Category 5 Hurricane Maria, which still to this day just feels astonishing and so unlikely, but that was our situation. And between Irma and Maria. We had about 12 days of response, and in that time, a group of volunteers who were residents of uh, St. John came together and started to kind of connect resources with people who needed them, Um, whether it was evacuations, connecting people who needed to leave with boats that were going to Puerto Rico or St. Croix, whether it was connecting FEMA with the community once they arrived or whether it was just generally leveraging our community knowledge to help uh, responders who were not familiar with the community. In those days between the hurricanes and in the weeks and months afterwards, we sort of earned a reputation as a group of people that could get things done. And as we saw that there was more and more need in the long-term recovery conversation, we decided that this informal group of volunteers should become a formal 501c3 nonprofit. And we, uh, we began that paperwork in October of 2017, and we're up and running by January of 2018.
0: That's awesome, and what great work you're doing. And you recently wrote a, a terrific LinkedIn post about community readiness, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. What's your overall approach? I and mean, you've talked a little bit about it a little bit here, but what's your overall approach to community readiness and how is it reflected on what's happening in the USVI right now?
1: Yeah, I'm so, I'm so glad that you read it and enjoyed that post. It was really sort of an anniversary post about our experience over the last six years, but also a recognition that we're seeing so many more communities go through this. We had just seen Lahaina in that devastating fire and uh, Idalia had hit the the coast of Florida. And in 2023, before those two impacts, we had seen 15 $1 billion or greater disaster impacts in uh, the United States. So community readiness is really more important today than ever before because a lot of communities are experiencing these disasters for the first time. Um, And so when we look at community readiness or community preparedness in St. John at Love City Strong, we really focus on three things. One is that uh, local resources matter, whether those are your human resources or your physical resources, um, understanding what you have and also what you don't have is a really important foundation to lay down so that, you know, where you stand, sort of understand the lay of the land after a disaster when you're thinking about a response. Also, logistics are hard. Um, That was true before 2017. That was true for us in the recovery. It was true for the whole world during the pandemic. And it's something that small communities in particular really need to pay attention to. Local knowledge also really matters. And I think we'll get into this a little bit more as we continue, but community cultural knowledge is very important because it differs so much from place to place and really only a community can share that information accurately. And then the final thing that we really focus on is that it's all about starting small and building from there. So starting small may just mean getting to know your neighbors, understanding who lives alone, who has unmet needs, who has chronic medical conditions like diabetes where they may need to keep their insulin cold or, uh, you know, who may need a little extra help with their mobility getting around after a a disaster. Those are all things that no federal response is ever going to know when they get on scene right away. They really need local connections to build out that picture for them.
0: That's really great, and what you're talking about reminds me so much, and here's our first geographic jump, uh, to lessons I learned in the aftermath of the devastating tornado that hit Joplin, Missouri back in 2011. And I was at a conference, and the, the superintendent of schools at the time was was talking about the process they went through, and, it was, and with a remarkable response and recovery, and people may recall that the schools were reopened within nine months, even though vast parts of the town had been decimated by this tornado. And they were being celebrated for this. And he was sharing that journey. And in the middle of it, he put up this uh, resilience map. Uh, and then he sort of skirted on and went on and told more stories about the tornado. And I locked right in on that. And I went up and talked to him afterwards. And I said, tell me about that resilience plan, that resilience map. He said, well, actually, we we developed that uh, and we, because we realized we had to deal with high school dropouts. Our economy was changing. And if we didn't keep kids in school and get more education... Um, We were our economy was going to fall apart. And so we had brought the community together around that. And there's a long story behind it. Um, But what, what it turned out was the relationships they built and some of the basic structures they built addressing the dropout problem was what they flipped and relied upon when the tornado hit. And to me, the big lesson I took away from that in terms of you have to learn what a community cares about. That's how you engage them and get them to to want to contribute and be involved and and get to know each other so they they can build that strong network. When you walk in with, well, here are the five risks we've identified looking at the FEMA criteria, nobody cares. Right? You have to find out what they care about, and then you can bring them together. Once they're together and they have a relationship, then you can introduce that next level of, oh, we should be worrying about this or that or the other thing. Um, I see too many emergency managers of starting off with their own priorities and then getting frustrated at the lack of community response. What's your experience been in that regard?
1: Oh, man, I have I feel like I could talk about this forever. Um, First, I want to say we do have a really soft spot for Joplin in the Virgin Islands, certainly St. John, because our linemen who came to help us after the hurricanes were from Joplin. And so they got off the barge with all their trucks with the Joplin, Missouri, BBC Electric, uh, you know, branding on. Them and we were like, these people understand. These people have been there, (laughs) and and that comes, you know, sort of brings brings in an idea of something I wrote about in in the LinkedIn post, which is this idea of disaster empathy, and the fact that communities that have been through a disaster understand the feelings. Of other communities going through disaster, right? It may be a little different, and it may be there may be certain circumstances that are unique. But communities understand other communities, and I think that that can be hard for responders to emulate. Uh, when, like, certainly at the federal level, because especially now, you look at FEMA and you look at the sheer uh, scale of their deployment, right, across the whole country. Um, all the time, you know, some some of these folks, a lot of these folks were deployed for years during COVID. And, and that's not just for FEMA, that's emergency management across the country. You know, people are burnout, people are tired. Um, and so conjuring a sense of empathy in these scenarios is hard in the best of times. And it gets harder the, t- the more tired and the more overwhelmed you are. And also you know, once you're on your third or fourth or fifth deployment of the year, you know, differentiating the suffering of one community from another is difficult. And I think that in general, folks do a great job and they do the best they can. But there is a certain amount of connection that has to come from a local component. And I think that that's where communities can really lift themselves up and say, you know, we can plug into to the federal response or we can get started. And then when they arrive, we can sort of pass the baton and supplement their efforts with our own. Um, you know, one thing from our personal experience was that culturally in the Virgin Islands, it's not really common to have like strangers come to your door because it's so small. And so when somebody you've never met before knocks on your door and is like, I'm here to help. The first reaction is skepticism. you know, often rapidly fi- followed by "Get out of my yard or like, get off my property." and and, you know, the people aren't tech people aren't exactly warmed to the idea of just help falling in their lap. And so what we found, specifically with the example of Army Corps of Engineers was here they were uh, installing blue roofs. What we found was that, when Army Corps went out with community representatives and they were paired up, we doubled uh, registration for that program. Just because the person explaining it to you and the person making that introduction was a familiar face. And I think that that's something that is really important to remember as responses are ongoing, right? Connect with local resources so that you can build trust because. Strangers are hard to trust in the best of times and certainly when you're feeling vulnerable.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so important what you just said. And it reminded me of we had a previous uh, Leader Readycast guest, Ashley Reichel, who was on talking about trust. And one of the things in her research that came out was how much we all overestimate the understanding of our intent. So we show you, know, yeah. you show up, whether you're with FEMA or if I were to come down and want to help out in a in a disaster, OK, I'm a good person. I'm showing up. I'm here to help. And we expect everybody else to understand that and and, and reflect our good intent. Uh, but actually, as you say, people have skepticism. They may have had bad interactions with the government in, in previous settings or they're just a culture that doesn't isn't used to a lot of outsiders. And so they don't understand your intent and it is it takes that bridge building and I think what you're talking about is so important that you as a, as a local liaison is going to help do that and sending local people out to help sign up for that the Blue roof program is a great example of making sure you're attending to the translation and the bridge building that has to happen in any response.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that that really hits the nail on the head, right this idea of like, Everyone assuming that their best intentions are going to be recognized and understood. Um, And that kind of works in reverse, too. I think communities don't always understand the federal response either. Um, and, And we run into that a lot, you know, that that people make assumptions about what the response is supposed to do for them or what the response is supposed to be and are disappointed when it's not that. And so that's another aspect of community readiness is are you learning, are you constantly, you know, understanding what hazards you might face and what a what an incident could look like and what a response could look like. And I think a lot of communities are really not doing that. That's a big gap for a lot of folks.
0: No, absolutely. I think, I think you're right. We see that disaster after disaster. People don't understand how the system works. I'm not even sure people in the system understand how the system works <laughs> because it's pretty complex, right? Um, yeah. But at every time there's that gap between expectations and reality that and it has to be overcome every single time. Now, you mentioned Lahaina earlier. I think we've all been moved by the fires in Lahaina and the devastation there. Um, as you look sort from of island to island, what lessons do you hope we all learn from from that particular tragedy?
1: Oh, man. Yeah, that was a tough one. Um, we, we watched that so closely here because hawaii and the u.s virgin islands and puerto rico and guam and american small we all have like a lot of these uh really bedrock issues in common and so when you layer disasters on top of pre-existing structural and systemic inequity you're really just it's a recipe for further disaster um so I think the first lesson that I take from Lahaina and that I hope everyone takes is that disasters compound pre-existing problems, right? And I think a lot of what we've heard coming out of Lahaina is, of, is some uh, dissonance about the relationship of Maui, of Lahaina, but of Hawaii in in general to the states. Um, I think a lot of history that a lot of people weren't aware of has been right. brought to the four. And that's important because there is a lot of history in this country. No matter where you're encountering a disaster, you are going to be wading through historical issues. Um, And that is going to impact the way people embrace or do not embrace help and the way people interpret what they are receiving versus what they think they should be receiving. And you know, I don't I don't want to wade into what is right or true or whatever about that situation, but perception is reality for people, especially when they're in a disaster. And I think that's important to to remember. So that's, that's one thing is the context of the disaster. I think another thing to remember is that federal resources, and I sort of touched on this before, federal resources are so stretched, right? You know, we're waiting on a budget resolution, FEMA's almost out of money. You know, there the administrator has mentioned that that certain things are getting put on hold, and it's only September. it's it's not sustainable. The system, as it stands now, is not sustainable. No government can manage all these disasters at this level forever. Um and no state or local government can do it either, and that's why everyone has to do it together. But the truth is that preparedness, readiness, response and recovery all necessarily begin at the community level because nobody knows the unmet needs like community organizations. Nobody understands a local response like local first responders. And nobody can help a federal response plug in where they're needed the most except community uh, leaders. Um, so I think that that's that systemic sort of audit of, of where emergency management, where disaster management stands in this country right now is a really important takeaway. And I think that to myself every time we have a big disaster. I always hope that that's the takeaway. Um, and I don't always feel that that it gets enough attention. Um, and then I guess the last thing that I would say is that. I hope that we learn that the pipeline for federal recovery dollars is not functioning right. (laughs) I think that there's so much money that's allocated for recovery, disaster after disaster after disaster. And more and more, this funding is headed towards communities that have never experienced something of the scale that they've just experienced. So they're traumatized as a community, they're traumatized as a government. They don't have the capacity in the government in blue skies to manage the kind of funding they're talking about. And they certainly don't have it when the community is in ruins. But the federal response also doesn't really understand how those pipelines work, right? Because it changes from program to program, from department to department. FEMA money is different than HUD money. Um, And so you often have a major gap between community-led initiatives, which are thriving, but underfunded, and government funding, which could be so helpful, but is not getting to where it's needed quickly enough. And I think that's a huge question, right? Like, how do you overhaul this entire system? I don't know that I have the answer, but I do know that something needs to happen.
0: I was just going to ask you if you had the answer. Oh, well, I mean,
1: (laughs) maybe next uh, time, (laughs) maybe next time.
0: Well, I mean, so, so much of what you're saying, we we're, we're singing similar songs here because I, one of my themes lately is that we we're in an environment we cannot respond our way out of. Uh, There's as you say, there's just too much going on. It's too constant. We've got to move the problem upstream and be prepared uh, make sure communities really are ready for what's going to hit them as best we can. Uh, and it, you're also right that whenever a disaster hits, it it, it, ex- it reveals your fragility. It also reveals your resilience. And I think you see both of that. But certainly, a lot of the things that you know, most folks going to Hawaii go, they go to a resort, they go to a couple of nice beaches. Maybe they go see a volcano. They don't get. To, they don't really experience the true history of the islands or the people who live there, uh, what their day to day existence is like. And now. When you have something like the Lahaina fires, it comes front and center, and it really does affect uh, what people expect, what they want, what they need, and how we can best support them uh, in in this time. And they're they're just one community, and it's been community after community, and uh, unfortunately, it looks like it will continue to be uh, given them what we're seeing in terms of extreme weather and other events. So, e- extrapolating from the island example, what as you're th- think about some non-island communities, the rest of us here on the mainland or folks who are elsewhere in the world, what are two or three things you would uh, you point them to first as, as a way to get them on the path to, to real readiness as a community?
1: Well, first, I always like to say, if you're a small, rural, isolated community, you're an island. You know? You're a resource island. It may be one road in, one road out. Think about paradise, right? You know, there was one access point for that community, and that proved to be an incredible disadvantage for them uh, in the fire. So, island is sort of a relative term. If it's hard to get stuff to you, you know, the logistical problems remain the same as they would uh, for for physical islands. Um, but I think the common steps towards community readiness really hold true across the board. You know, one just to Harken back to, to something I'll repeat over and over again. Um, know your resources. Know your resources. Know your people. Know your uh, neighborhood. Know your churches. Who's good at what? You know, who's retired but used to be a nurse? Like, there's all kinds of stuff that you may not know about your community. But the more you can identify it and the more uh, camaraderie and sort of togetherness you can foster. Um, to learn those types of things, the easier it is to translate those into preparedness and response. Um, I was having a conversation maybe last summer with some of the folks from Team Rubicon. They come down sometimes and, and do some training and capacity building for us. And they're amazing. And we always have such great conversations. And we they were saying how, you know, St. John's so little and you know each other and what a valuable asset that is. Because we don't always see that when we respond to communities in the States. And I was thinking about how true that is. You know, we're really lucky here that we know our neighbors, but it's not a unique skill to us, right? Anybody can do this, anybody can cultivate this kind of relationship building. Um, and I would say that that is step one, right? Get to know people, get to know what you have access to. Um, and building on that is build those relationships, build relationships when, you know, it's not a disaster with the saying goes, right. We don't, we don't exchange business cards uh, during a disaster (laughs) and that's for federal response, but also for regular people. Um, you know, the thing about love city strong is that none of us had ever done any disaster response before Irma hit our home. And so we all just kind of learned on the fly. And there's a lot to be said for that because outside the box, you know, you're really just focused on outcomes and not necessarily how you get there. It doesn't necessarily have to be pretty. Um, And, you know, in hindsight, we're like, man, there should have been paperwork or there should have been, uh, you know, cost share or like whatever, there's all these technical things that you can get bogged down in. But when it comes to getting outcomes, It's the relationships that you build in blue skies when everything's fine that are going to come through for you with big businesses in your region, with little businesses in your town, uh, with churches, with community organizations, with philanthropists in your region. You know, these are the types of relationships that really can be brought to bear in a meaningful way um, after a disaster. And then finally, I really think building community readiness is so important, but you can't do that unless you're building a culture of readiness along with it, right? You have to be a culture of people who are prepared and open to change, like prepared for and open to change because that's what all of this is about right, is a whirlwind, sometimes literally, coming through your life and upending everything you know and just having to figure out from ground zero what happens next, and you can't do that if you're not in a growth mindset, and so I think That's one of the most critical skills to build in a community and sometimes the hardest skill to build in a community because people don't want to think about it. They don't want to think about the bad things that could happen. But unless you're thinking about it and unless you're thinking about it in the sense of. Yeah, my community has never flooded, but the world is changing and weather is changing and maybe we will flood. And if we do, what are we going to do then? you know, or I live on the coast of Florida and I have insurance, so I'm fine. But the world is changing and insurance is changing. And so if you don't have insurance, what do you do then? And these are the types of questions that I think more people need to be asking before something bad happens. And then just as a final every community sort of lesson, I really wish we could all learn from each other before something bad happens. Because I do hear fairly often from communities after a disaster or as they're like looking down the barrel of a disaster. You know, Lake Charles has reached out. We've talked to people in Lahaina. You know, what did you do? How did your work come together? How is it working now? But I wish there was a Sort of nexus of community, like community after actions, right? Is there a place that can go to say, "Here's the communities that have been through this stuff, and here are their lessons learned"? Wouldn't that be a great resource?
0: Uh, um, boy, wouldn't be it cool. be? Wouldn't it be? And, and I do have to note I forgot to mention earlier that one of the good things to come out of the, of Joplin was a book that you can everyone can find on on Amazon called Joplin Pays It Forward. Uh, put mm-hmm. together by Jane Cage and, and others in Joplin. Jane's another MPLI alum. It's only 99 cents and it's, it's 99 cents because she couldn't figure out how to put it up there for free. But they documented <laughs> a lot of their lessons and wanted to put it out there so that others can learn. And, and Megan, as I listen to you talk, I'm thinking, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could take a bunch of those after action reviews and, and the, the learning there and then put it into a predictive database so a community could go and say, hey, if this happens, what should we be ready for? and use it ahead yep. of time, not just as a, as a resource after the fact.
1: Seems like a great use for AI to me. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I hope somebody
1: is listening who has that skill set who can build it out. I listened to your recent podcast about AI and that's where the uh, the wheels really started turning.
0: Absolutely. No, you're right. We're, we're working on a paper on AI. That's one of the things that's popping up is how do you dive into all those existing resources that Just right now, it's it, it's too hard to get to them. It's too too hard to slog through and, and find what you need. Is there a way to make it much that much faster and much more efficient? And if somebody listening does develop that, all we ask is a small royalty is payback. Some can go to Love City Strong. <laughs> we'll take some at the MPLI and yeah. you, can, you, can, you can keep the rest. Uh, <laughs> So let's talk a bit about a little bit about your personal leadership journey. Because you said you've never done disaster response before. Um, now you're the executive director of this organization. This is and you're passionate about it. I can hear it in every every word you say. So as you look about, look through your experience as a leader and what you took away from your, your time coming through the MPLI, what's been most valuable as you've been leading these efforts at Love City Strong and across St. John?
1: Oh man, it MPLI. I can't say enough about how much it changed my personal experience. Um, First and foremost, just in the sense of presenting me with peers, uh, (laughs) because I came into our cohort in December of 2019. And so I was really not that far removed from the actual, it was only two years after Irma. And I was figuring it all out, like building the plane as we flew it, as they say. And I just, I just had no idea (laughs) what I was going to do. And I was just doing my best and I was leading a team bigger than I'd ever led who had all also just been through this disaster. Um, And so there's trauma there, you know, and there's how, how another great, episode you guys did on trauma-informed leadership. Um, You know, I think that there was so much fear that was just like the pure motivator for where I was just like, I got to keep going. Like, what am I going to do? I can't stop. And I got to NPLI and there were such amazing people in my cohort. And I know this is true of every cohort, but I really feel like cohort 18 is the best. <laughs> um, and and we were in a really unique position too because obviously like starting in December of 2019 we were the beginning of covid. That was our cohort. Um we it changed everything for all of us I mean, in real time. And and so being presented with the week in person with people who got it and who I could learn from but who also validated my experiences because the like level of imposter syndrome that I felt (laughs) walking into that room the first day, I was like, these are professional people and I am like some girl (laughs) who tripped into this work. Um, so that's the first thing, like the peer group incomparable, you know, like that's, that's just a, a game changer forever. And we, we all still keep in touch and, and they're valued colleagues of mine. Um, as far as the tools and the lessons um you know again i was actually i was flipping back through my your it book which lives in my office um and i was trying to pick the things that that really had the most impact and it was hard to like pin anything down i but but a few things that's that really leap out to me are one getting out of the basement right (laughs) that is so hard It's so hard to do. And I find myself using it in like my personal life, you know, when I'm having a fight or like when I'm having a bad day, but also, you know, just a few weeks ago, hurricane Lee was, you know, maybe bearing down on the Leeward islands and it, it was maybe going to be a category five and it was just looking so much like Irma and the whole team was really in the basement. And You know how do you get how do you reset how do you get out of that and how do you move forward with purpose and intent? Um, That's a lesson we use on a weekly basis. I would say Um, the arc of time is something that always lives in my brain because, especially in the sense that, like we had Irma and Maria which was two different arcs of time. And people forget that, you know, and I try, I I actually have to remind people in our response that a lot, that like, you may be working on the Maria timeline if you're in St. Croix or Puerto Rico, but ours started 14 days earlier. So don't forget. Um, And then to layer COVID on that, right? Now you've got a COVID arc of time. Um, And how are those responses playing together? And how are your resources playing together? I think that is an incredibly useful perspective tool. Um, and then finally I would just say the meta leadership concept as a whole, but certainly the tension between authority and influence. Um, because in my personal leadership journey, I started with just influence. Um, because I didn't have any real authority. I was just a person and I was just trying to do my best and I didn't have any funding and I didn't, you know, have any, any title and we didn't even have a name for a while. Um, but we could get stuff done. And so that earned us influence. And now we have sort of traversed to the other end of the spectrum and we have gained a certain amount of authority and it, striking a Full balance between those two is sort of sort of a daily game, right? Like which does this situation call for? Is it more authority? Is it more influence? Are we walking the line? Um, but but I I, th- I think that overall the lesson I take away from MPLI as a whole is that growth mindset is always important. Like we're always learning and it's ne- you're never in the you're never across the finish line of learning about crisis leadership because every crisis is going to present a new set of challenges and a new type of solutions um and i think that's why i enjoy it even when it's stressful and awful and you know <laughs> even in its worst moments it's always like a really challenging puzzle um and NPLI really gave me all the tools I needed to sort of figure out the puzzle when it changes on me.
0: Well, we always say we try and find the best people, give them a little confidence and push them back out and then take credit for everything you do. And what you're doing is amazing. (laughs) So uh, your community is very lucky to have you. So I've just got one last question for you. It's a question I end every episode with what gives you hope?
1: Uh, this sounds cheesy and I uh, probably don't feel it all day, every day, but I think people give me hope. Communities give me hope because every time you see a disaster, you see a shining example of community response, right? It may not be the whole community. It may not be the whole response, but every time you see some component of the community that stepped up and did a really exceptional job of serving their community. And as long as communities keep doing that, and as long as people keep being kind and serving in that capacity, that will always give me hope.
0: Well, that's great. And I know you give hope to your community because what you and your colleagues is doing is absolutely amazing. And thank you for that.
1: My guest you. for this
0: My guest for this episode has been Megan Enright. She is the executive director of Love City Strong. So until next time, remember that you're it. Be ready to lead when it matters most. This has been another episode of Leader Readycast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative subscribe to leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu follow us on twitter at harvard npli thanks for listening and be ready to lead